entering the Freedom Hut. We got a Freestyle Friday underway. MSNBC can't math good. Trump town hall on Fox News lays down a lot of important stuff for us. The administration is going to withhold funds from sanctuary cities. Bernie Sanders pushed really hard for Soviet propaganda to work better than he thought it would. And also breaking down the latest on the jobs report and Michigan. Will that be the place where the Sanders campaign ends? We got that and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. It has been quite a week. I got to tell you, this is one of these weeks that... Uh, I feel like we've all been through it. I can't really explain why. we got coronavirus fears all over the place. Every time I open up the Drudge Report, it's like they're, the Drudge Report has turned into the guy pushing around a shopping cart with a sign that says, you know, John 316, and then another sign that says the world is ending tomorrow. You know, like, I, I don't know what's going on here, but they need to calm down a little bit. We're We're going to be okay. This is a problem. We're on it. We're going to work together. We're going to figure this out. There's no need to panic. I'm reminded of Will Ferrell in Old School when he starts banging on the locker, saying, we're going to keep our composure. We have to keep our composure here. It's going to be fine. I'll have some updates for you on that later. I'm also trying not to make every day. I think this is journalists become lazy with this. I'm not a journalist. I'm in media, but people that do media content that's based on news become lazy because just every day, oh, we got a a corona count every day, another thing, got to tell you. You don't have to know every little detail about every place all over the world where there's been another person with corona. That said, I'm not about to get on a cruise ship anytime soon. Plane, fine. I was on a plane last weekend. Cruise ship? I'm just not a cruise ship guy. Producer Mark and I have talked about this. It's not something that gets me excited. I'm not somebody who, of course, as I'm sitting here, I, I touch I touch my face as I'm talking about this. That's the one thing you're not supposed to do. Uh, but I'll, I'll have some, some worthwhile coronavirus updates, just a few of them for you later on in the show. And I'm going to try not to make this every day just an ongoing, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, coronavirus, COVID-19. There's a lot of other stuff to talk about. And since it's Friday, I wanted to start with one of my favorites. There, You know, the the media is something that I enjoy talking to you about because I, I've been a really a super consumer of news media for decades now. It's something that I've always been fascinated in. The first job I ever had, I guess, if you want to call an internship a job ever, was not including hourly stuff like tutoring and things to make some money when I was in high school, uh, was working at CBS Evening News with Dan Rather as an intern. And that was great because I just remember walking around being like, okay, I was only 18. Like Nobody here seems to be really that smart. Everyone here is very stressed out and just uh, constantly on each other about very minor things. And they all seem highly replaceable and overly anxious to me, including Dan Rather. Uh, who would show he had the greatest job I'd ever seen. He would show up at, I don't know, 4 p 3.30, 4 p.m., read through his lines, get his hair done, 30-minute broadcast, boom, $7 million a year. Because you need somebody who can look into the camera and sound like this and 
It's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's absurd, the whole thing. It was a, it's a joke. I mean, it's an old model. Out with, with the boomers now, you know, not as uh, completely dominant about all media decisions. They're still dominant, but uh, this old model is changing. The silent generation, the boomers, think that having one person, not all of you, if you're listening to this and you're a boomer, you're obviously a more sophisticated news consumer. But the old model was to have these people that would go on TV and they sound the part and they look the part and that's the news for today. And everyone goes, ooh, okay, you know, that, that sounds like objective news. I'm informed now. Eh, false. And you have some of these vestiges, some of these holdovers from the news business uh, that you see that are from that old model. And perhaps the single greatest example is Brian Williams, a guy with no discernible skill or talent other than just sort of looking and sounding like the guy that you should be listening to on the news. And then we found out that he was somebody who had told lies many, many times over. Not as many lies, I think, as we've already established. Joe Biden has told in real ways that he will not be able to run away from and just remember that you've been lectured about how Trump lies, Trump lies for years. And they are putting forward a liar, a straight-up liar in Joe Biden against Donald Trump. And I have the evidence. We'll play some of it for you. We're going to keep running this. Just remember all their principles. Oh, it's really just that Trump lies. I mean, I had to deal with this in the Bill Maher show, everything I tried to say. Well, hold on a second. What's going on with the coronavirus response that you don't like? Trump lies! Well, okay, I mean, he's, they are working on an accelerated vaccine schedule, so when Trump says that, why is that? Trump lies! That's the only thing they say. Trump lies! This has become like a like the bleeding of the stupid sheep from Animal Farm. Bad, four legs good, two legs bad. That's what they're doing. They don't even think about it anymore, but you know, Biden lies all the time. They don't care. He's Joe Biden. You, you can trust Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden really reminds me a lot of the Bill Paxton character in the R.I.P. A very good actor, by the way, um, in the movie True Lies. You know, he's like, you know, I've got a few other interested buyers. I mean, he, he Joe, Joe Biden is the politician version of, of Bill Paxton in True Lies. I wish I could do more of the lines from that, but some of them would not be acceptable for, for radio. This is my way of telling you that some of the most prominent journos out there, ones that think they should tell you what to think, how to vote, how to behave, what you can say, are really not intelligent. They're just not very bright people. They're actors who got their way into, uh, who found their way, worked their way into a journalistic establishment of some kind. And all that really takes is a few corporate execs in these places because they're legacy institutions, places like NBC News, also MSNBC. These are really just versions of each other. NBC is the slightly more corporate-friendly, slightly watered-down version of the truly left-wing insane asylum that is MSNBC. But MSNBC can't math good. Mm-mm. Nope, they've got problems over there. And here you have Brian Williams, who I just... Bef hold on a sec, Producer Mark, before we get to this amazing clip. And it's one of the greatest news clips I've ever heard. I mean, it's, it's that good. That's why I'm starting the show with it. Before I get to that with you, let's just remember that Brian Williams, before he was found, and it was just found by internet comments on posts about him, before it wasn't like you know MSNBC or NBC did some big interview, <clears throat> interview with him or investigation and figured this out, Brian Williams was the, was the heir apparent 
to everything going on at NBC News. He was the guy. He was going to be the one. And they were paying him, I think, $15 million a year, and then we're about to pay him even more than that in a big contract before this whole controversy came out. And he was supposed to be the most trusted. Brian Williams could get an interview with any politician, anybody in the country, anytime. Most trusted voice in the country. And he's sitting down. I, I got to set the, the, the context for this. He is sitting down with a member of the New York Times editorial board named Mara Gay. And you would think the New York Times editorial board, you know, they they would uh, they would sneer at submissions from real conservatives. Oh, that's not up to our standards. You know, they have all kinds of political bias going on. But they, they think of themselves, even though they publish people like Charles Blow, <clears throat> Charles Blow, Krugman and others, they think of uh, of themselves as intellectual elites. And yet, you know, Charles Blow, Krugman, uh, I'm trying to think of who was some of the worst, you know, Bruni, just, uh, Fr- Thomas Friedman. But they, they still hold to the center. And they're referring, so you have a, a top anchor formerly of, of NBC, now MSNBC because of his problem with the truth, talking to a New York Times editorial board member about a tweet from somebody who is a Washington Post contributor, somebody who writes frequently, has in her byline the Washington Post uh, and her contributions to it. This is how they math good. Play, Play it, producer Mark. You see it as a possibility if he wants to spend a billion bucks beating this guy, he could do it. Absolutely. Um, somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. I got it. Let's put it up yeah. on the screen. It, when I read it uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent $500 million on ads. U.S. population, $327 million. Uh, don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American $1 million and have had lunch money left over. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's true. It's disturbing. It does it does suggest, you know, what we're talking about here, which is there, there's too much money in politics. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That is my favorite. That is my all. That might be, I mean, that's a top 10 TV news clip. That is absolutely fantastic. You cannot make this up. That's right, folks. They think that because Bloomberg spent $500 million and the U.S. Popul- <laughs> the US population is $327 million, he could, like, easily give each American a million dollars cash and have lots of money left over from what he spent on the campaign. Now, I make fun of things like Joe Biden saying that 100, as he did without correcting it, it wasn't misspeaking. He said it and he let it stay out there. Joe Biden said 150 million people have been killed in gun violence in the last 10 years. There are 320 million people in America, probably more like 330 now, a lot of illegal aliens. $500 million divided by $327 million is nowhere near a million per person. <laughs> and yet, you have to remember, 
this isn't just something that was said. Because, look, I, when you're doing you know, math under pressure, one of the reasons people go into TV news, into acting, I'm just telling you the truth. Other people won't tell you. Uh, you know, university teaching, get a Ph.D. in the humanities, because they can't do math. It's true. If I was better at math, you think I'd be sitting here? I'd probably be working at some hedge fund, slapping producer Mark with $1,000 bills. But he wouldn't care, because he'd be my right-hand man at the hedge fund, and he'd be driving around in a brand-new Porsche 911. You know what I mean? He'd be fine with it. But that, you know, if I was good at math, we'd probably be doing something else. I'm better at math than these people, though. That I can tell you. Uh, Brian Williams of NBC, New York Times uh, editorial board member, referring to a tweet put out by somebody from the Washington Post. I mean, these are three of the most elite media institutions you could find anywhere, and none of them picked this up. And you have to understand, this was a tweet they put on the screen. So they chose that this was prepared beforehand. Producers at NBC or MSNBC. This was at MSNBC, which is the same thing. Producers at MSNBC saw this tweet. They saw it and they thought, yeah, that really nails it. That really makes the case about how Bloomberg, they take the exact wrong lesson, by the way. The lesson of Bloomberg is that you can't buy an election. But their lesson that they take from this instead, because they like just the the virtue signal of, we don't want money in politics, is Bloomberg somehow shows us how corrupt elections are because he spent so much money and got nothing, Zippo, nowhere. But put that aside for a moment. Yes, there is, and it's important, and this is part of the rethink of the ruling class in this country that has been going on as a result of Trump's rise. Those who seek to rule over us are media overlords, the people in positions of authority in government, in media, in so many ways. A lot of them got there for reasons that have, I would argue most, I would argue a vast majority, have very little to do with intelligence or ability. A lot of them just played politics well, understand the system, work the system, and in journalism in particular, are just ruthless. Ruthless and sociopathic. That's how they get where they are. But there are many, many, many sheer and utter, and I'm not saying this for a laugh line, it's true. There are dumbasses all over the mainstream media. Complete dumbasses. And, and you need to remember that. It's not that they're, it's not that I just don't like some of their policies because there are smart libs. I'll sit here all day if you want. I'll tell you who the smart libs are. There are smart libs, no question. I think they're wrong on stuff, but they're still very bright. There's also a lot of dumbasses, though. And this is just another example of, I mean, what a, what a, what a stuffed shirt phony Brian Williams is. I mean, not just because of this, it's everything. You look at everything. This is a guy who just really mastered. Sounding a certain way and looking into the camera a certain way. He's not learned. He's not insightful. It was all an act. I can't even, I don't even know who Mara Gay is. I honestly never even heard of her before, but clearly not very good at math. And the person whose tweet they referred to, who writes for uh, Washington Post, I don't know who, I, I've never heard her name either, but this was amazing. The 11th Hour put out this tweet. Tonight on air, we quoted a tweet that relied on bad math. We corrected the error. We apologize for the error. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's that's about as much as you can do. Uh, they, don't, they don't math good over at MSNBC. Nope, they got they got problems over there. That's that's amazing. But go to them. Listen to them about what you should do in the stock market. Listen to them about coronavirus. Who you should vote for. These people are brilliant. They know more than you. They think really hard all the time about all the important things. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team, one one more point I, I wanted to make here about the the most amazing MSNBC clip, which is saying a lot because MSNBC has some great moments that are unintentionally hilarious. I mean, MSNBC is a joke. It, it, it's uh, to think of this as a news network is laughable, but it is what it is. Um, there was one point here that that I think a lot of people are going to skip past, and that is also, yeah, okay, we're making fun of them at math. And look, I, I, I'm not somebody who's great at math on the fly. I'm not going to pretend that I am better than these people, but not going to pretend like I'm, I'm good at math. Uh, there's also a reason why they would believe this, though. And they, I really mean this. They've convinced themselves. It is now liberal orthodoxy. They have convinced themselves that it is possible to just take money from billionaires and pay for everything. They think this is true. They believe the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren rhetoric. I mean, this is a real political point about how you can have such a colossal and stupid mistake on TV. It's because everybody everybody there has been hearing from all these Democrat candidates like Sanders and Warren and others, you know, the millionaires and the billionaires will pay. And people think, oh, okay, all they got to do is tax the billionaires a little more and we all have great free health care. This is a huge, a monumental, blatant, obvious lie. But they believe it. They believe it so much that they think, yeah, sure. You know, if you just took what Bloomberg spent on the campaign, you could probably pay off the national debt or something. I mean, they think things that no reasonable person could because the propaganda about how billionaires could pay for everything in this country has seeped so far into their brains. This is real. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't listen to him. He was on, I think, Fox yesterday or something and telling people, go to work, it's nothing if you don't feel good. I mean, no, don't no, listen if you to don't him. Feel- don't listen to Joy Behar either. Please, don't listen to Joy Behar about anything. Speaking about people who are dumb and on TV, woo, she's she's top ten. She really she's in a special category. She's like, oh my gosh, why do we have to listen to Trump? <sighs> uh, the president is trying to calm people down and tell people to keep going about their business. He's right to do so. There's clearly a merger now between Trump derangement syndrome and what we see going on with coronavirus coverage in the media. The more negative it is, the more they want to tie it to Trump. The more they can tie it to Trump, the more negative they want it to be. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a cycle. And yet, they want to pretend that they're doing this because they have your best interests at heart. Do not listen to the crazy media about this stuff. All right. Listen to people that you know and that you trust and that are trying to approach this with the first priority. And this is what I tried to say. Again, I keep referring back to last week. I mean, I was honestly stunned. I mean, some of you have asked me about the Bill Maher appearance. I was stunned by um, how dishonest and how obtuse and just just honestly dumb so much of the commentary around me was. 
I I should have expected. The only thing I blame myself for with that is that I should have expected it a little bit more because I know how libs are. But I thought it's not like we were just talking about, you know, Trump on the border. You know, that I'm always ready for that. You're going to get Trump. You know, Trump's a racist. I thought on coronavirus and this is my mistake. This is my error error um, that there should be some sense of responsibility in coming together. And we really don't want this to become a major problem. No one wants this to become a major problem because if it does, it do, it means that there will be large numbers of seniors in this country, you know, our moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you know, friends and neighbors. There'll be large numbers of seniors who could fall victim to this. And that should bring us together. That that mission of protecting our seniors, because they're by far, as as has been said by all responsible parties all along, they're by far at the greatest risk here. I mean, the, the numbers uh, in terms of fate, uh, mortality for people over 70 who get COVID-19 versus people below 50. I mean, below 50, unless you're severely immunosuppressed, which I would note also means that you are every single year having to deal with the possibility of getting a fatal flu if you're really that immunosuppressed. So that that's just to say that those people already understand they have to be very careful, very vigilant, and always will and always have been. Uh, but I, I thought that on this, we could approach this like a for, it was a foreign invasion, but a pathogenic foreign invasion into this country, and that that would bring us together. There'd be a little bit of a post-9-11 effect, which was a real thing, not with the whole left, but with some Democrats you know, in large numbers of Democrats, I'll be honest about it. I always will be honest with you. Uh, they, you know, there was a sense the country was united against a common enemy. Our common enemy here is a pathogen. And yet the way that this is being reported on and talked about, the, the real enemy is Trump's response to the pathogen. And I should have known. I should have known that even now with lives at stake here at home, their primary focus is not on educating, informing, and preparing the public for this and bringing us together for the most effective government response, their primary goal is to use us as a weapon against Donald Trump. It's the truth. And it's actually, it feels kind of gross to say it, but it is the truth. I mean, it makes me feel bad about the state this country is in. And so that was my, because after the after my whole experience trying to talk to Mar and, and that panel, uh, it just sort of felt icky, and I was like, well, what is wrong with these people? I mean, it really was, and it was, uh, in that sense, very important for me going into this. I talk about being a wartime conservative, and you got to be a wartime conservative now on everything at all times because the left will, will cede no common ground to you. There's no principles that they will not violate. They're in a total a total berserker mode trying to reestablish power and control. They'll do anything. It doesn't matter. So lesson learned. I'm always learning. I learn from all of you as you write in and as we continue this conversation now many years in. That was a lesson for me. Another lesson is Joy Behar's an idiot. Don't listen to her. And if, if my words on this aren't enough for you, here's what she had to say about AOC running for president. Play 15. So AOC would, would be actually a good choice, except that she's a Bernie person. She's also not old enough. Well, she she's not as the VP. Nope. Yeah, well, the yeah, Constitution has a minimum age oh, for president, and it's conceivable that the vice president is going to be president. <laughs> and now I know people could say, well, maybe she could be in the VP slot. 
but then she couldn't arise. But then why would you have a VP who couldn't arise be president, right? Somebody might try to make that argument as why Joy Behar made that mistake. But Joy Behar had no idea that there was an age, age requirement for the presidency. None. Zero. And she's informing people across the country every day. Whew. Um, I was told by somebody who would know that she makes uh, two, three million dollars a year to do that show, to be a total, utter buffoon. ABC News, ABC News would would think that Joy Behar acceptable for their brand. They wouldn't have me on. No, no, no. You can't have the uh, political science guy from Amherst to work the CIA, a couple of war zones, and blah. blah. No, no, no. That's mm, that's a little outside the mainstream. Let's have Joy Behar on. It's amazing, right? It's amazing. This this is what we're up against. Uh, the but then again, I mean, liberal. The only people who are dumber than mainstream media talking heads, as a general rule, are the mainstream media corporate executives that put them in these positions. They're even dumber and more like shameless and reckless and self interested and everything else. So you've got to, you've got to keep that in mind. So um, I'm glad we've had a little bit of a of a deep dive here into the the stupidity of the media. Now I want to take you into, which is a very real thing. Um, oh wait, I didn't mention this before. The the Bloomberg, you know, they're talking about this. We got into this because of the Bloomberg money that was spent in the campaign, and now it's coming out. You know, I was making these jokes at producer Mark, like, can we can we just wear like a Bloomberg T-shirt, show up at a rally, and eat the Wagyu beef sliders and and the little foie gras terrines and whatever else they've got at the Bloomberg rallies. You know, is that... It turns out that people who work for the Bloomberg campaign are now saying that it was a grift. That a lot of them were actively campaigning for Bernie Sanders while on the Bloomberg campaign payroll. They did the absolute bare minimum of work. Those who even believed in Bloomberg a little bit essentially changed their minds after his admittedly disastrous debate performance. You know, I had people sign NDAs, and I didn't want to let them out. How much money do I have to pay you to get you to stop asking about the NDAs? You know, Elizabeth Warren, man, she she went after him. She went after him big time. You know, so that's... She may have buried the hatchet, but not before she used it against Mike Bloomberg. And, you know, this is this is just what we all expected, that Bloomberg came in with all of this money, but politics is about more than just money. The left doesn't want to learn that very clear lesson from this process um, because they'd prefer to keep – they've created this perception that the right is where all the money is in politics somehow, even though if you look at, like, the ultra-billionaires in Silicon Valley, they're liberals. They're liberals. So that's – uh one thing about the Bloomberg campaign that I wanted to get to. Now, now we have to look at uh, what's going on with, with Joe Biden. He is able to possibly finish off uh, Bernie Sanders in Michigan, depending on how Michigan goes. I've already seen polls in Florida where apparently it is not a popular position to take that, you know, Castro did some good things. They don't like hearing that in Florida. There's a whole community of folks down there who really don't appreciate, always looking for the bright side of Castro's prison state. So Bernie is in really bad shape in the Florida poll. So he's he is toast there against Biden. But Michigan might might end him even before that. When I say end him, he's going to take it all the way to the convention. 
but he'll be far behind in delegates. Everyone's going to know that Biden's the real the real front runner. So we have to dig more into Joe Biden because some you've seen a little bit of this. There are some liberals out there who are honest about how Joe Biden isn't what they thought they would end up with after a year of a Democrat primary. Think about all the candidates, all the excitement around Kamala and Beto and Buttigieg. And there were like four or five people who were excited about Julian Castro. And, you know, I mean, like, think about all these different folks. Or was it Joaquin? No, it was Julian. Joaquin's his twin brother, I forget. It was one of the Castro brothers. So with all of that, they end up with the least exciting, second oldest, and arguably just like the, the most boring white dude on the planet, Joe Biden. That's what the Democratic Party, after all, after all the diversity, all the female candidates, everything, they end up with a guy that if you were casting somebody to be the quintessential machine politician it would be big grinning handshaking baby sniffing woman grabbing joe biden that's what you do that's what you would have uh, i mean especially if you were doing a comedy and, uh, corn pop and i was i took the chain man and, and i had a, a razor and i made it rusty and i was gonna go out there and rumble with corn pop because the hair on my legs were blonde and i was like hey look at the sun glistening through my leg hairs kid this isn't weird i'm just telling you a story i think it's a little weird here's biden's promise though he says that he's gonna win and that's been the promise all along play clip 10 Look, I think the one thing the president doesn't want to do from the very beginning is face me because I will beat him, period, period. He has done everything in his power. He's even risked his presidency because he doesn't want to face me. A rhetorical question. Have you ever, ever seen a sitting president get so involved in a Democratic primary and focus so much attention on not wanting a single person, me, to become the nominee. The president does not want me to be the nominee. I think this is going to work out very well. I think Joe Biden, everyone has realized for a long time, has been propped up by the machine. They tried to do this with Hillary in 2016. They are, you know, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing and expecting a different result. That's that saying. Uh, they're doing they're running the same election they did in 2016 they're expecting a different result do we really think that joe biden is a more inspiring more effective candidate than hillary clinton now i think that hillary is uh, you know has a lot of problems but democrats love her they do the democrat establishment loves hillary clinton that's why they went to bat for her against Bernie in the first place. That's why the deep state covered for her with the email fiasco. I mean, there was so much that you look at here that they did. And the media was just all in against Trump in favor of Hillary. And it wasn't enough. They think that it's going to be enough for Biden. Let's unpack that theory together a little bit. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And for folks in the working class that are below 400, they will, in fact, will increase their, their premiums. The public option will be available in my plan. 
We'll make sure it's not quality. We'll make sure it's only affordable. We'll make sure it's not quality. Wait, it's not quality, It's o- but only affordable. What? You're going to have a lot more of this. Joe Biden, for a man who effectively makes his living speaking publicly, that's really what his job is. He's made millions of dollars as a paid public speaker since leaving the vice president's office. Millions of dollars. We're also going to learn more and more about the millions of dollars that his son and brother and other people around him made just because they happen to be friends with Joe Biden. Hmm. Interesting. Burisma is not the only thing that people are going to be poking into. But Biden's gaffes are one thing, and the media is going to tell you. I already know what the, they're going to just say, oh, everybody makes mistakes. And you'll start to see clips of Trump, you know, speaking off the cuff where he stumbles on something, and they're going to try to say, oh, it's all the same, and he's not senile and all that. Well, you got, you got two big problems here for Biden that are on the, on the style side of things, not looking so much at the, at the substance of what he stands for, but more of Joe Biden, the person, and stylistically how he is as a politician, you have the gaffes, the misspeaking, which is not really a big issue, except people honestly think that he might be in the early stages of dementia. And I think that that's a fair discussion to have, given some of the things that he says. Um, but then there's also that Joe Biden, as I said, as I told you at the beginning of the show, Joe Biden is a huge liar. He has a long established history of lying about things publicly and on the record. This was just an old news report circulating right now about Joe Biden. I think this is back in the 80s when he was running for president the first time around. This is going to come back to haunt this guy. Play 23. The new questions stem from taped remarks of Biden during an April campaign appearance in New Hampshire. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. Went back to law school and, in fact, ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only 123 credits. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class, that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship, ended up near the bottom of his class, and won only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. I mean, this guy comes off this whole thing as a flyweight. Now Biden says Newsweek is right. His memory had failed him. His memory had failed him. My friends, I I am honored every day by this audience giving me their time. I mean, I really do. I, I love all of you, even though I've only met a handful of you in person. If I ran on, if I ran around saying that I was a uh, a Harvard educated Rhodes Scholar who also you know won like a Westinghouse Prize in science. And it turned out that, no, like, I just went to undergrad somewhere and got a degree like everybody else. Would anybody believe that that was just my memory? By the way, this was in the 80s. He wasn't super old. Anybody believe that that would be okay? I'd get a pass on that one. Three degrees? No. One degree. Full scholarship? No. Partial scholarship. Top of his class? No. Bottom of his class. Joe Biden is a consistent and continuous liar. 
Some people might even say pathological. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I will also say, guys, that it is, I think that, that we all know, and this election cycle in particular, has also presented very legitimate questions about the challenges of women running for president of the United States. Why do you say that? Well, it's obvious. Just look at what's happened. Look at what's happened. There are no women currently in this race. And, um, I, you know, we can have a longer discussion about it, but the reality is that there's still a lot of work to be done to make it very clear that women are exceptionally qualified and capable of being the commander-in-chief of the United States of America. Gender in this race, you know, that is the trap question for every woman. Uh, if you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says, whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? Um, I promise you this, I'll have a lot more to say on that subject later on. <laughs> I'm sure she will. She's like, ah, there's the reason that I'm not going to be given the nuclear codes and the... The biggest job in the country is people just won't vote for a woman president. No, it's not true. And also, let's just step back for a moment as Kamala Harris, we had Kamala and Warren, we could play others too, uh, are, are complaining about how we don't, we don't have a woman uh, presidential, well, presidential contender. First of all, it's not true. Tulsi Gabbard is still running for president. And I also think it's so interesting that the way this is framed is immediately like uh, skips past. It immediately jumps beyond this is a Democrat primary. So is the Democratic Party full of sexists? Is the Democrat Party full of people that are unwilling to vote for a woman to be president? Because can't blame this one on Republicans. It's not a Republicans thing. So, and also, this is just, why it is whining. It's whining. Elizabeth Warren is not a strong candidate. She didn't win her own home state, for heaven's sake. She came in third in Massachusetts behind Biden and Bernie Sanders. She had the most bizarre political self-inflicted wound I've ever seen with the like, oh, I'm 1,024th Native American. See, I win. Who wants some powwow chow? No. No, no, no. We're not just going to pretend that that didn't happen. And if you remember, because liberals like to tell us about this all the time, Hillary Clinton actually got more in the popular vote than Trump, even though that's not the contest that's being run. And I can't emphasize that enough. A lot of people that live in California and New York State don't vote for Republicans because they know they're going to not. It's the vote's going to go to the Democrat. A lot of campaigning is focused on battleground states that is not focused on getting the vote out. You know, that's not the contest that's being run. So it's a stupid point. But in terms of the willingness of people to just in general cast votes for a female to be president, I mean, we've already run the experiment. Plenty of people are willing to vote for a woman to be president. And I think a lot of people would like, you know, it feels good. There's all this research uh, that social scientists who aren't really scientists, but they call themselves that, uh, you know, political scientists, again, not science, it's politics. But they'll look into this and by polling and, and by the studies, people vote. A lot of why they vote is 
a result of how it makes them feel to cast that vote? What does it say about me to vote for this person or to vote for this proposition if it's some kind of a referendum, right? How do I feel about myself when I do that? And this is why you know, we, we kept hearing about how, oh, you know, Obama had to overcome so much racism in the president, you know, to become president. No, people were excited in general at the prospect of voting for the first African-American president. It made them feel good. Anybody who was ideologically open to Obama's agenda felt great voting for the first uh, first African-American president. And a lot of people who were, you know, uh, independent minded or whatever, they probably voted for Obama in part because they wanted to vote for the first African-American. The same thing would be true of voting for the first woman president. You want to be on that groundbreaking, history making victory train, right? But you don't want to do it if you think the person who you're voting for happens to be terrible. <laughs> that's just the case, Elizabeth Warren. People don't like her. You know, the, the media can maybe push her far enough so that she can continue to be a senator from, from Massachusetts, but it just doesn't have national-level appeal. You know, she's somebody who, uh, there, there's nothing about her that you can point to and say, yeah, that feels like it's really authentic and really good. In fact, the best stuff that she's done in the past you know, her book on the two income trap is very interesting. And I think that that's something that does deserve more public discussion. Why is it now uh, why is it now the standard that so many people, particularly in, in urban areas, right, in cities, it is expected in, in our culture generally? Some of you, of course, are going to say, no, it's not. But if you live in New York, if you live in California, you live in a lot of uh, a lot of these blue strongholds, Two, two parents working, even with small kids at home, that's the expectation. Why is that? It was not always the case. That has changed now. Uh, and there's a, lot, there's a lot of complicated reasons we could cite for why that is. Some of them are economic, some of them are, so, are social, but it has certainly changed this country in ways that we haven't really fully come to grips with yet. She wrote a book on that. She had interesting ideas on that, but now she's all, she's like Bernie Light. She's the female Bernie who's a little more palatable to the establishment, and so that was what she was going for. And I just think it it actually damages the future prospects of other women on either side of the aisle who would vote for president to have this consistent, oh, it was sexism. No, we make fun of everybody who runs for president, male, female, you name it. We make fun of every candidate. We, we judge every candidate based on who they are, what they stand for, what they say. And there's really, I, I just don't believe this myth that the libs tell themselves that it's because Hillary was a woman that she didn't win. And she, she of course, has blamed it on sexism. It, it's sour grapes. I mean, this is sore loser stuff. It's sore loser stuff from from Elizabeth Warren, to be sure. Um, I mean, this Pelosi says the same thing. Play, she's, she's going on, Pelosi. Play 17. But I do think there's a certain... Uh, element of misogyny that is that is there and some of it isn't really mean-spirited it just isn't their experience many of them will tell you they had a strong mom they have strong sisters they have strong daughters but but they you know they have their own insecurities (laughs) it's just a cheap shot is it cheap? based on what? Why is she saying this? That we there are insecurities that people would not vote for a woman president. Maybe it's just not a good candidate. 
you know, I, I think what's going to happen, by the way, I, I'm just going to put this out there. I think you're going to have, and I'm not going to name, and I'm not going to, and I'm not in the prediction business and politics for at least the next couple of weeks because looks like Biden is going to be the nominee. Whoops. Uh, but I think you're going to have the first president of the United States uh, be a Republican who's a fe- who's a female. I think you're going to have the first female president of the United States be a Republican. And that will be a fascinating test of liberals who claim that they're shattering the ultimate glass ceiling and because they've created this whole identity, which I know we talked a lot yesterday about this. And it was kind of an intense first hour of the show, but I think it's an important and intense topic. And we have to speak honestly about it when you have women shrieking and screaming on the steps of the Supreme Court about how proud they are of their abortions. I almost want to. I honestly, I almost want to cry for them. Like it, it may, I tear up thinking about what they've done to those unborn babies and and to themselves and to their souls in the process. But you know, we have to we have to move on to other topics today. Liberal women, though, have adopted this mentality that they're to be female. First of all, I got so much today. I don't know. I just came in. I came into work today, just ready to fire on all cylinders. First of all, liberal women. Uh, have a difficult time now accepting the progressive agenda because, or they should have a difficult time with it because it doesn't really allow for a a clear definition of what a woman is. Really mean that. What is a woman according to Libs? It's not a biological state. It might be a psychological state, but it's not a psychological state that anybody could particularly um, explain. You know, they'll say, and there's a lot of incoherence here, too. You know, they'll say that boys and girls don't, like, young boys and girls don't play with different toys because of biology. But then the moment somebody says that they're trans, particularly if it's a boy who thinks he's a girl who's, you know, eight or nine years old, they want to start dressing dressing him like a girl, playing with girl toys. They want all the trappings of female stuff, but, but, but there's no biological connection between these things, they'll tell you. So then why the big push to, to, to have the kid playing with the female stuff and dressing as a female? In, it's incoherent. You can't make sense of it. You can't, they can't define what a woman is. But here is what they will define for you. The left believes that to be considered a woman, to be in good standing with the, the female gender slash whatever that includes that's not actually female now. You have to adopt certain political positions. And if you do not adopt those political positions, internalize them, fight for them, believe them, you know, shriek about equal pay when it's a myth, you know, that that the pay gap is because of sexism. It's just not true. Economists have looked at it over and over every time they come back. It's not true, but they say it. Uh, Claim that men and women are equal. Claim, Claim that there's no... Uh, important biological difference between male and female strength, endurance, and other things so that, you know, we need to have women in forward combat roles, even if they can't actually meet the standards. We need to have men competing in women's sports. All these different things. You have to accept all of that. But, but, But the single most important thing to be a woman, if you're going to be considered a real woman by the left, by the Democratic Party in America today, you must be absolutely devoted to abortion as a as a fundamental female right. And if you are not, you're not actually a woman anymore. And we will see this play out when if we do have a female Republican candidate for the presidency, and there are a few that come to mind that I think are going to 
after Trump hopefully wins re-election. Uh, but there are a few that I think we could all point to and say, and that would be probably a formidable candidacy. Uh, candidacy. You will see the media without without even batting an eyelash, without even a second thought, start running with, well, it's they're not really, this isn't really a, a win for women because this, this Republican presidential contender isn't really a woman because she believes in, oh, I don't know, uh, traditional family and male and female roles and is pro-life. That's pretty much, you, if, if you answer yes to those things, you're not really a woman, according to Democrats. You're some, you're a traitor. You're, you're outside. You have female biology, but not, not a, not the female, you know, membership card or whatever. That's where we are in America today. It's pretty upsetting. It's pretty absurd, but it's the truth. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The best estimates now of the overall mortality rate for COVID-19 is somewhere between 0.1% and 1%, okay? That's lower than you heard probably in many reports. Why is this? Number one is because many people don't get sick and don't get tested. So probably for, and this is, uh, reflects the overseas experience, so probably for every case, there are at least two or three cases that are not in the denominator. So I just want to sort of scale that, that it's certainly could be higher than normal flu. It probably is, but it's not uh, likely in the range of two to three percent. Who does that sound like? I mean, who's been telling you that? Now, you might say, Buck, is that just some random person? No, that's the Assistant Secretary for Health, Admiral Brett uh, Girouard at the Department of Health and Human Services. It's exactly what I've been telling you. Because I've read about previous outbreaks of particularly dangerous influenza in the last 20 years. And the initial the initial panic is always accompanied by an initially much higher mortality rate. And yes, sometimes the mortality rate is higher in general when they finally crunch all the numbers properly than standard flu strains. But it's less than when the initial panic happens. And that's a big difference, right? If you, if you, I was about, I'm about to start doing math. I learned from MSNBC. You don't do math on the fly. But the difference between a 0.1% mortality rate and a, and a 2% mortality rate is when you're talking about playing that math out over perhaps millions and millions of people is enormous. That's a very, very big difference. So that's why when people start talking about the Spanish flu, a 5% mortality rate is really scary, right? That means you're, you're losing for every 100 people that are getting infected, five people are dying. You play that out every 1,000 people, you know, 50, every uh, – uh, doing a lot of math today on the show. I did not learn my lesson from MSNBC. Uh, but that's, that's where we are. That's the, the, the true number is going to be less than the 2 to 3% that you've heard based on all the data we've seen so far. Because we know about all the mortalities where there are proven cases. We don't know about all the people who have been exposed. That number is going to get bigger. So I, I wanted to share that with you. I also wanted to say, stop panic buying everything, folks. Okay, this is not this is not helpful. It's not. A, I know you're not doing this. I mean, look, a little bit of preparedness. I think it's good to be prepared in general. So I'm not saying don't have two weeks of, of food on hand. I think that's a good idea, period. I do. I could live... 
out of my freezer alone, assuming the power stays on, but I could live out of my freezer alone as long as I had running water and electricity for probably, I'd say, two or three weeks. Just out of my freezer, never mind the fridge or the pantry. Bruce and Mark, if you had to, in in Castle in Castle de Mark, you and Ariel, how long could you last with what you've got already access to food-wise? Right now, not, not a lot because I'm moving. Oh, already. that's right. So. Okay. Well, when you move to the normal. new place, would you please, I'll feel better if I yeah. know, you and Ariel, you guys socks, need, you, you know. need like two weeks of grub. Yeah, two I mean, we, we usually have a full freezer. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you need to you know, have much. that freezer and, you know, soup, Campbell's soup, I should have known, that Campbell's mm. soup would have been a great buy. I should have thought of this. Mm. That's the main soup, that's the main soup people go to. A lot of them have gluten, so I can't do that, but uh, I, there are other soups I like. But um, that's, you know, some canned stuff and freezer and you're good. Now the freezer, obviously, if we if we if we get to dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, the power goes out. You got to eat that freezer stuff pretty fast. Of course. But assuming that that's not the case, but there might just be shortages in stores, or you know, uh, you know, you're you're going to be in good shape. You're going to be in good shape. I've so. been in that situation after hurricanes when the power goes out. Where were you for Hurricane Sandy? Uh, for Sandy, I was in Queens, so it wasn't that bad. But I was down. I lived down in Florida for uh, middle school and high school, so I went through a couple of hurricanes. Yeah. Did you Definitely. ever have to like kind of rely on what was just in the in the house for a few days? Uh, there were a couple times where the power was out for a few days, and we yeah. lost all the food because yeah. we couldn't cook it either. Yeah. So that was uh, always tough. Yeah, I mean, I I remember I was actually staying. Uh, it's a long story how I was staying in a hotel in New York City, even though I lived here during Hurricane Sandy, and I went up to the roof while the hurricane was going on. The roof of this hotel, the hotel maintained power three blocks from us blackness wow the power went out so it was just above where the power outage was and i went to the roof the night of the and i could see all of southern manhattan and you could see the blacked out areas and i gotta tell you that was spooky stuff it was spooky to see a huge section of new york city in pitch blackness a pitch black at night and then the next morning we had all these people coming up because we were one of the first places the hotel was actually very good they're giving everyone coffee and donuts and please use our power like they were i was impressed this was the nomad hotel in new york city a great hotel by the way um but yeah they uh there were people walking up and they were the the thing that really freaked people out was if you lived on like the 30th or 40th story of a building the power went out a lot of those buildings oh. internally in the stairs, there's no there's no windows and there's they didn't have emergency lighting. Oh, and you had to walk down you the stairs. You had to walk right? down the stairs. So people are using their phones as flashlights. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I think people are viewing us as having done a very good job. What we have to do is do a very professional job. Nobody is blaming us for the virus. Nobody. I mean, I haven't heard that even from some of the so-called enemies or whatever you want to call them. They're not blaming us. This started in China. Uh, how it started is questioned, but thousands and thousands of cases in China. And it infiltrated to almost 100 countries right now. But I'm not talking Nobody's about the handling of it. Me. Excuse me. I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm just asking about, um, you know, in terms of things you can't control. Right, the impact on the economy, and that potentially, you know, that could, if people feel like the economy is turning around, that that could be an election issue as you go into it. Well, look, we were set to hit 30,000 on the Dow. This is a number that nobody ever even came close to. 
and already we have the number, and even though it's down 10 or 11 percent, it's still the highest it's ever been by far. Uh, it certainly might have an impact. At the same time, I have to say, people are now staying in the United States, spending their money in the U.S., and I like that. You know, I've been after that for a long time. You know that. I've been saying, let's stay in the U.S., spend your money here, and they're doing that. They're sort of enforced doing that. We met with the airline companies yesterday. They're doing a fantastic job, and they're just not flying to areas that have a big problem. So it's going to all work out. Everybody has to be calm. It's all going to work out. I think that's the message. And I agree with the president here on that. Now, I, I do disagree that people aren't blaming the president for well, they're not blaming him for the existence of coronavirus. But I've been on the receiving end of psycho libs saying that the president is not doing a good job on this, that we're, you know, we're all at risk because of him. And there's a lot of that. I mean, he obviously knows that, but clearly there's no uh, there's no one who's blaming him for this. I, I think it is. Inter- now, look, I know it's a conspiracy theory that's out there without there's no evidence yet. Uh, and there's also no one who really knows yet. Epstein didn't kill himself. No, I'm just kidding. That's a different thing. Uh, there is a conspiracy theory out there that the open that the open air market where they think this thing started in Wuhan, uh, Wuhan City, uh, which I believe is in Hubei province my my chi- my mid-east geography is phenomenal my china specific internal geography i got the major cities and i know where the muslims are and uh that's a you know and i know where the shaolin monks are and after that i get a little shaky i'm not gonna lie i'm not i'm not, a, I'm not an asia specialist by trade i was a mid-east guy so when i when i if i ever mess up uh, you know now i'm all i'm all like uh Nervous that after making fun of MSNBC, MSNBC for being so stupid, uh, you also had Anna Navarro, that one of the dumbest, if not the dumbest, political analyst at CNN, uh, come out to say that she was in Arkansas and she just doesn't understand how people from Arkansas who are seem pretty nice could have given someone so terrible like uh, given us someone so terrible like Jeff Sessions, because you know Arkansas and Alabama totally the same. Um, anyway, the theory that they have about the virus in Wuhan is that it came from some these open air markets they call them wet markets I think they've stopped calling them that but uh there's a video of it you see it you're like wow I can't believe people actually this is where they go to get animals to eat um but it was that it was bats initially bat soup was getting a lot of a lot of uh, attention then it turned out they said it was a pangolin and let's be honest all of us were like googling what's a pangolin I think I'm pretty good with animals, and I had to think about what a pangolin looked like before for a moment before I could figure that one out. Uh, and and now they're not, you know, they don't really know. But there's also it's it is a coincidence. I'm not, but there is a a virology bioweapons lab very close to where this where this outbreak happened. That is just an inter- it is just an interesting coincidence. I know they've said it's a debunk theory or you know people put it out there early on. Okay, but really I mean China's a very big place with a lot of people. The one place that I, that I know of that I've read about where they do biological weapons research in China, unless I'm missing something, uh, that the virus would have popped up for the first time within a matter of, a, of miles of that place. It's, it seems notable. That's all. It just seems notable. I can't. I'm not making a claim about where it came from. This just. I got thinking about this because 
yes, they're not blaming Trump for the existence of the virus, but they're look, they're rooting against America. And this is pretty, pretty frightening to think about. But there are a lot of people on the left who are are clearly, in my mind, okay with this becoming a big disaster as long as it means Donald Trump doesn't get to continue to be president. And let's actually play this out for a second. If you believe the rhetoric of the libs, they say that Donald Trump is a traitor. They say that Donald Trump is a threat, a clear and present danger, could lead us into, say, a nuclear war with North Korea. These are all things they've said. You know I'm not, that none of those are exaggerations. Prominent people in the media and politics have said that about this president. If you believe that, and you know that in a bad flu season, 80,000 Americans might die anyway, if you're leaving it up to the left, to the libs, to make this determination, do they think that it is? Now, I don't think that they're actively trying to make things worse, but if they were offered a choice between a future in which America suffered, let's say, a total of under 1,000 deaths from coronavirus, but Trump wins, or 50,000 deaths from coronavirus, but Trump loses— I do believe that there are leftists, and I'm not talking about just crazy people living in basements writing comments. I do believe that there are Democrats and liberals who would prefer the latter outcome. That is the degree of Trump derangement syndrome that exists in this country. And I'm not saying they're working toward that outcome. I'm not saying they're trying to you know, spread I'm just saying if you ask them which future they would prefer, less than 1,000 dead from coronavirus in America— and Trump is president for four more years or 50,000 dead from coronavirus, but Trump is guaranteed to lose. I, I don't think I'm alone here. I think there, I think a lot of people would agree with me that there are libs out there who would say that the, the second one is more important for America. That's a better future for America. That's terrifying. It's terrifying, but it's the truth. And I've always promised you that I'll speak the truth to you no matter what, no matter what comes from it, no matter what happens. And that's really what I learned when I was out in California. That's what I learned from being on the Bill Maher show. That's what I see day in and day out now with a lot of the truly Trump deranged. There are some there are Democrats who clearly would reject this and, and say, no, no, no. Life is I'm, I'm not look, I'm not somebody who thinks that all Democrats are bad. I have a lot of Democrat friends. I'm not one of these people. But there is this this crazy sort of Bolshevik fringe in the Democrat Party that's very powerful. So they may not be a large number, but they're very influential. And I think that they would they would make that that choice in a way that is um, deeply disconcerting if, if they were given that option. Uh, and it's a, it's a thought experiment that's worth doing for us so we really understand who they are. I mean, who the political opposition to Trump really is, what they're all about. Uh, you know who definitely agrees with me about how we have to get serious about this? You've probably heard of him before. Producer Mark, would you play clip 19 for me, please? And that's how Poland survived a thousand years of invasion. You either start protecting yourself or you die. You either fight or die. And that's why, folks, there's a lot of changes around here because I'm in war mode. And nobody in a fight is going to grab me like a woman by the hair and slam my head in the ground like I'm a they're going to get nothing but pure war because the season of war is now upon us. Information war, culture war, spiritual war. <laughs> this guy is. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I saw that clip making the rounds. 
Uh, we are in a political war right now. That is true. But some of the other stuff that he said, I was like, my gosh, good heavens. Where did they, where did they find this fellow? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You are a self-proclaimed germaphobe. Uh, in the campaign, before the campaign, you didn't like to shake hands. Uh, you changed that. Uh, what did doctors? Well, I'm not thrilled. Yeah, yeah, you're not thrilled. <laughs> what did doctors tell you? Have you changed anything in the way that you operate? So, yeah, it's a great question because I've always felt, you know, I don't know, from the time I was a young guy, I, you know, I've always felt the concept wasn't good. Then you'd read a lot of medical reports is not good now, especially they're saying, by the way, if there was ever a time that you could convince people not to shake hands, this could be it. Okay, this could be so it. Do an elbow. But you know what I did? You know what I did? Uh, I really, I love the people of this country. You can't be a politician and shake hands. People come out when I leave, I'll be shaking hands with people. They want to shake your hand. They want to say hello. They want to hug you. They want to kiss you. I don't care. It doesn't mean you have to do that. If I went around, no, I don't shake hands. Can you imagine I'm going to be with a group of people and they like Trump and they come up, sir, thank you very much. I don't shake hands. <laughs> it's over. I don't care how nicely you say it. The bottom line is I shake anybody's hand now. I'm proud of it. They're people that I love. They're people that I want to take care of. This is why Donald Trump is where he is and why he is probably, well, I won't get ahead of ourselves, but this is why Donald Trump has been successful as a politician with the establishment completely dead set against him because he understands people because he, he, he and he actually likes people. I think Elizabeth Warren is a fraud. I think Elizabeth Warren, if she has if she had her way, she would just hang out with people from the Harvard faculty lounge and, you know, the people that are of her similar socioeconomic, uh, you know, echelon. And that, that's it. You know, I don't think that Elizabeth Warren wants to spend a lot of time around people that she doesn't that that, you know, aren't her are her cup of tea, you could say. And people pick up on this. This is one th- one thing I've, I've always I've always known. I've always seen this. And, and you're, you know, you're aware of this. Uh, th- those of us who see everybody else as a person. You know, somebody who's who speaks to whether it's the guy, you know, delivering the pizza or the person cleaning, you know, cleaning uh, the pipes for your toilet or whomever it may be. People might try to be polite, but you can always tell the people that have a conversation that's just polite with those individuals versus the people that have that conversation. And they just see them as a person. They want to talk to them. They like them. They like people. And every they, they just like people as a general thing. They like other human beings. Donald Trump has that. This is why, you know, whether he's talking to the CEO of a company or he's talking to, you know, uh, a construction team that's sitting on the sidewalk, you know, with their lunch pails eating, you know, eating a sandwich. He likes them. And that comes across. You know, I, I think as much as he's a mess in a lot of other ways, I think Bill Clinton does like people. I mean, he's an egomaniac and he's a liar and he's, you know, uh, sexual assault allegations against him, a lot of bad stuff. But I think Bill Clinton does like people. And that always came across from everyone I know who's interacted with them and dealt with them. He's, you know, he likes himself more, but look, Trump has a healthy ego too. Some of these politicians he put forward, Bernie Sanders doesn't like people. Elizabeth Warren doesn't like people. I think Joe Biden has spent his entire career really Honing at least the appearance of just liking people. And if I'm I'm going to try to be fair here, 
I think I think he I think he actually does at some level, you know. I I, I think he likes people more than Elizabeth Warren does. And this is one of the this is a, a version of that, oh, when somebody was running for office, do you want to have a beer with them? Well, what are you really talking about there? It's not are they gonna really entertain you and are, are they gonna be hilarious or are they gonna agree with all of your positions? The do you wanna have a beer with this person thing is do you get the sense that this person just has a a warmth in their approach to other human beings and just comes to every meeting with another person from a from a place of basic, hey, I'm glad to be here, good to know you, and you know, want the best for you. I think that's an energy that that's a, a mindset that people have whenever they meet with other human beings, or they could have the uh, here I am, fine, okay, yes, I will talk to poor people today because like I'm running for president, but I mean, ugh, that was the way that was Bloomberg's approach. Didn't work out very well. Elizabeth Warren always tries to say, oh, you know, I'm from Oklahoma and I was a single mother and I was fired from my job as a teacher and blah blah blah, all this stuff. And a lot of people hear that and just sort of say, yeah, but it sounds like you're trying to sell me on why you like me as a person or you like people instead of just show me. Just be normal. Like, I don't know how else to say this sometimes other than just be cool. You know, just be good to people. They, they pick that up. And no matter what someone's level of education is, no matter what background somebody has, one of the universal human constants, I think, is people can pick up when other people actually just kind of like people. And for politicians, it's a very powerful, a very powerful trait to have. In fact, some people might argue, especially in the pre, you know, internet and pre-mass media age, I mean, it's a, it's a critical one, right? I mean, the, the feeling that you give to people when you meet them. Um, and I think it's, I don't, it's not impossible to fake. I, you know, I think Biden's a little bit of a faker, but he's gotten pretty good at it. Uh, it's something though that if if you're dealing with a person who's reasonably well attuned, they won't they won't be able to to pull off seeming like they like people when they really don't, when they really just could care less. So that's how I feel about that. Trump shaking people's hands, even though he's a germaphobe, is kind of an example of how he under he understands that this is what he's got to do. This is the job he's in for. I would also know we are going to be in a little bit of a strange position because we're in an election year where presidents, we're going to have two presidential contenders who are older white males who, if we have this COVID-19 thing spreading in mass fashion, which could very well happen, let's be, let's be clear about this. I mean, the president and also the uh, contender against him, Joe Biden, I mean, they are in high-risk categories. I don't know. I'm assuming that they're just going to continue business as usual and go to huge events and shake people's hands. And but this is a. I think from an epidemiological standpoint, you have to think that this is a. This is a real concern. This is a real thing that we have to uh, be aware of. Um, I I appreciate that the president's out there telling people it's okay that he's calming the nation uh, as much as he can while being responsible about taking the the proper precautions. And, and I just think that if you had a different president, the media would be helping him with this instead of constantly trying to undermine this message. I mean, here, here's this is all from the Fox News town hall last night with Martha McCallum and Brett Baer. Play uh, play eight. I think the country is far more united than people think. And ultimately, what's uniting the country is success. 
And we're having more success than we've ever had. We got hit with the virus really three weeks ago, if you think about it, I guess. That's when we first started really to see, you know, some possible effects. But even despite that, the country, we are having the greatest year we had last year was the greatest year we've ever had economically. And I think the way we unite is really through success. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And people don't like her. People don't want that. They like a person like me that's not mean. Okay, I'll see you guys. <laughs> he was talking about Elizabeth Warren. It's like, I'm not mean. She's mean. She's a mean person. Uh, you know, she's she went after Mike Bloomberg. That's for sure. I mean, that was really the the only thing that she did in the campaign anybody's going to remember. She decided to just rhetorically knife Bloomberg on that stage in front of everybody. I mean, she went she went Brutus on Julius Caesar. She was going right after him. It was rough. It was rough stuff, to be sure. But, uh, you know, Trump does like people, as I was saying to you. I, I hope that little rant about that all all held together and made sense, because it, it, is, it is how I feel about this. I think it's one of the... One thing about him that's very underrated by his opponents, they keep thinking he's a billionaire, he's dated, you know, pinup girls and, you know, blah, all this other stuff. Yeah, but he just also likes people. And a lot of the a lot of uh, smug libs out there. Look, there's also there are Republicans. I don't think Mitt Romney likes people very much. I think Mitt Romney likes to think he likes people, but Mitt Romney's a, a very... He likes to hang out in very rarefied circles, I think. Um, speaking of which, as if his little vote against Trump in one of two areas on the impeachment wasn't annoying enough, now he's he's the go-to for the mainstream media trying to let us know that we shouldn't we shouldn't find out any more about what really happened with Biden and Burisma. Play sixteen. There's no question but that the appearance of looking into Burisma and Hunter Biden uh, appears political. And I think people are tired of these uh, these kind of political uh, investigations and would hope that if there's something of significance that needs to be evaluated, that it would be done by perhaps the FBI or some other agency uh, that's not as political as perhaps a, a committee of our uh, of our body. Why, why can't they look into this? They just impeached the president. Was that was that political, Mitt? Because you were a part of that. But this would look political. They're just going to try to find out the truth, right? Isn't that what they're supposed to do in Congress? Isn't that why they have these oversight committees? Isn't that why they have the powers they do of subpoena and all that? The Democrats just weaponized all that crap against Trump. We know you helped them out, gave them cover, although nobody was really going to remember. Mitt Romney really just debased himself in that whole process. In, In trying to elevate himself, he debased himself. But Trump isn't letting this one go. I mean, there's some very interesting stuff in this Fox News town hall last night with Trump. Trump's like, look, Biden's overseas business dealings. That's a thing. That's fair game. It's going to get talked about. We're going to talk about it. Play clip one. Look at the sun. Here's a guy didn't have a job, was unfortunately, sadly, the military was a very sad experience for him. He goes out, he gets three million dollars plus one hundred and eighty three thousand dollars a month to be a board member of a company that a lot of people said was corrupt. Worse, just as bad, China. I just made a great China deal. China's paying us billions and billions of dollars because of what I did to them with tariffs. Billions of dollars. I mean, to a point where my farmers are in love with me because I took some of that money, gave it to them. 
But his son walks out of China with a billion and a half dollars for a fund. Now, a billion and a half dollars for a fund means he's going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and much more than that. Everyone thinks that's what? That's okay? That's normal? Supposed to just let that go and pretend that it's uh, not doesn't look super corrupt. It doesn't look like it's a complete and utter payoff, a scam, corruption. <sighs> but, you know, the media, they've tried so hard to cover for Biden on this one. They're not going to be able to do it. We're going to find out more. Uh, you know, I know Rudy Giuliani's been over there looking into this and others. Do they have anything? We'll find out, and we should find out. We, we have the right to know the truth about what really went on there, especially after being lectured about how, oh, Trump is doing Russia's bidding. Yeah, what was what was uh, Hunter Biden doing with connections to his dad in Ukraine? We, sh- we should find out. I, I want to know what those answers are. All right, so I, I did preview this at the top of the show, and I skipped past it just because Bernie Sanders is not getting as much attention right now as Biden because Bernie is going to gonna lose. I think we all know that now. Um, there's this term that the Soviets used to use, useful idiot. It was a person who didn't realize that they were being helpful to the Soviet Union and the cause of communism, but they were, and the Soviets loved it. And there were a lot of them. In this country, there were a lot of them in journalism, in academia, and even some in government who were doing, who were carrying water for the Soviets. And even if they weren't doing it in as, as a, a form of specific loyalty to the Soviet Union, they were useful to the Soviet Union. Uh, here is, for example, uh, Trump talking about how he was all ready to go with, as he says, communist. I love it. I mean, this president, th- thank heavens he speaks about things the way he does and just doesn't go through the filter of the media. Play clip two. I'll tell you, I was all set for Bernie because I thought it was going to happen. You know, we get ready for things, right? So mentally, I'm all set for Bernie. Communist, I had everything down. He's a communist. I was all set. And then we have this crazy thing that happened, right, on Tuesday, which he thought was Thursday. <laughs> But he also said 150 million people were killed with guns and he was running for the United States Senate. Support me, I'm running for the United States. There's something going on there. But I was all set. I was all set. And, you know, when I focus and we all focus, sometimes you do well and some people choke. I watched Minnie Mike choke when Minnie Mike was hit by a very mean woman. He said, get me off this stage. Just get me off. And, and that wasn't a pretty sight to be white. But, but I was all set to take on Bernie. All set to take on Bernie the Communist. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when this guy and, and, and Joe Biden are going after it? I mean, you wanted this, Democrats. You want it, you're going to get it. Democrats, you want it, you're going to get it. This is where we are. Commie Bernie. Peace in the New York Times. Now it's safe. Now it's safe because the, the party has decided, the decision has been made really by the DNC insiders, by the Democrat Party apparatus that it's going to be Joe Biden. It's not going to be Bernie Sanders. So now they'll start printing stuff like this at the New York Times. Now now they can pretend to put their journo hats back on. As Bernie Sanders pushed for closer ties, Soviet Union spotted opportunity. Previously unseen documents from a Soviet archive show how Mr. Sanders 
worked to find a sister city in Russia when he was mayor of Burlington, Vermont in the 1980s. Moscow saw a chance for propaganda. Let me just read you a little bit of this piece. This is great. The mayor of Burlington, Vermont, wrote to a Soviet counterpart in a provincial city that he wanted the United States and the Soviet Union to live together as friends. Unbeknownst to him, his desire for friendship meshed with the efforts of Soviet officials in Moscow to reveal American imperialism as the main source of the danger of war. That mayor was Bernie Sanders, and the story of his 1988 trip to the Soviet Union has been told before. But many of the details of Mr. Sanders' Cold War diplomacy before and after that visit and the Soviet effort to exploit Mr. Sanders' anti-war agenda for their own propaganda purposes have largely remained out of sight until now. Bernie was a useful idiot. That's what Bernie Sanders was for the Soviet Union in the 1980s. They're like, we're, we're going to use this guy's clear affection for socialism and communism, clear affection for the Soviet Union. He came back. I've played you the audio. They got great trains. They got great schools, health care for everybody, you know, all this stuff, right? He liked the so He went there. He saw it, and he thought it was a good idea. This guy's the number two right now, the Democrat primary in this country. And Democrats get so angry when we say they're socialists. Oh, it's so unfair. Yeah, it's a socialist party. It's just a question of how much socialism and how fast they want to give it to us. The Democrats are a socialist party. Now there's these 89 pages of letters and telegrams and other things from internal Soviet government documents that look at this whole process. And they were exploiting this idiot mayor from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, for their own purposes of propaganda that America, the imperialist war machine of America, see, even this mayor knows that America's the bad guy. Bernie Sanders, I, I got to tell you, I mean, people that really think that this guy, sure, he's authentic. He's an authentic Marxist. That somehow has been overlooked in much of this conversation. A, an ideology that has immiserated hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people when you add it all up, an ideology that was the primary ideological force that sought the destruction of this country and the free world for, what, 50 years or so? Bernie Sanders was like, yeah, I kind of I kind of like the way they do things over there. We should do more of that. And now that we finally defeated that evil empire of the Soviet Union, thank you, Ronald Reagan, we're supposed to have Bernie import some of the failed ideology that he's been supporting his whole life that was the primary ideology of our opponents in the Soviet Union. I mean, this this is this is some pretty scary stuff when you think about it. I mean, that, that and when I say scary, I mean that this is that he's an individual that wins California. I mean, California, what is wrong with the libs in California? Why are they so crazy? Why are they so nuts? Do they not read anything? Do they not understand anything? And a lot of them claim to be so educated and they work in the, you know, the university system there or they're you know, people in media or they're in Hollywood or they're super rich or they're in Silicon Valley. And they think that, you know, because they're good at being computer engineers, the rest of the world should listen to them about everything else. It's very poor judgment with someone like Bernie Sanders. Uh, very poor judgment to support an individual like this. 
And as much as I'm a little bit disappointed that we're not going to have the throwdown, and Trump clearly was disappointed we're not going to have the throwdown between Sanders and Trump that perhaps we could have, uh, I do think that as we look at this now, maybe you know maybe it's for the best that we didn't have the propaganda effect of a socialist running around as the Democrat. Although this is not going away, AOC is every bit the socialist that Bernie Sanders is, and they're going to have her run. She's going to run. She's going to run for Senate. She's going to run for president. You watch. It's going to happen. So we haven't won this. That's why I thought maybe better to have a repudiation of Bernie on the national stage because there's this ideology has real. So it's not just Bernie Sanders. He's just the figurehead for it. It's within the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has incubated this now. It's been there for, for well, what really happened, I and mean, I can tell you, take you in the history here in the 20th century, is that the American Socialist Party, the American Communist Party, merged into the Democratic Party. And it has been a, a something of a Trojan horse. It's been getting bigger and stronger. It's been getting more powerful in Democrat circles. That's what's happened. That's why there is no American Socialist Party anymore. There was. It now just... Is uh, was initially a parasite and is now increasingly engorging itself on the host of the Democrat Party. That's what it is. That's where it went. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Got a special treat for you on this Friday, my friends. Eddie Scary is with us now. We actually started together way back in the day at The Blaze, and he has been lighting it up over at the Washington Examiner as a columnist. He's also got a new book out, Privileged Victims, and he wants to tell us about it. Eddie, great to have you. Hey, happy to be here, and thanks for bringing up the good old days. Yeah, man. It was, you know, it's been almost 10 years, buddy. You feeling old yet? Uh, yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah, that makes two of us. All right, tell us about the book, Privileged Victims. Who's privileged and who's the victim? Uh, well, it turns out we have, that's the dynamic that's set up within our culture now, in, in every part of our culture, Hollywood, uh, the national media, academia especially. That's just kind of where it all comes from. Um, but then also our politics, particularly with regards to the Democratic Party. They, they say it's the privileged versus the victim. That's kind of the power dynamic that we're always looking at. But it, in that power dynamic, I've noticed that there's a new class of people born out. They are the privileged victims, people who claim to have been oppressed, aggrieved, victimized, always on account of their gender, their race, or their sexuality. And regardless of whether it's true or not, oftentimes it's not true. They haven't been oppressed or victimized. But that comes with a lot of special privileges now. You can you can advance a lot of your own interests, whether that's you want more money from somebody, you want um, national attention, you want to become famous, you want a job. Any number of things, you can get these things simply, and, and you can get on, get on the fast track to those things simply by claiming to have been oppressed, agreed, or victimized, again, on the basis of your race, gender, or your sexuality. And I'll just give you the, the ultimate example, but there are many, many in my book because, it, again, it touches on every part of our culture, and so many people have figured out that this is the fast track to um, advancing your, your own interests. But the ultimate example was Jesse Smollett. Um, Chicago police and two grand juries now have said he wanted more money for his Fox show, Empire, and he wanted to get more famous. Well, he knew, because this is the culture we live in now, to get those things, he just had to say, oh, I've been, I was attacked for being black, and I was attacked for being gay. I'm oppressed, I'm a victim, I'm aggrieved, he, according to police and according to two grand juries. Now, he made that up, but why would he make it up? Because he sees the pattern. He sees the pattern I saw, that if you just claim these things, make the claim, fake it, fake it to make it, um, that's all it takes anymore, and that's 
that's the new class of people we're looking at. That's why I call them the privileged victims. If you're claiming victimhood, you get all these privileges with it. Now, do you think that uh, this is ever going to change? Because I, I feel like we all, this is now something we have to accept. It's part of corporate culture. If you challenge any of this, you get shouted down. You get chased out of the public square. You could lose your job. It feels like it's this this issue of, of victims using their, their perceived victimology to advance their careers. It's a more powerful tool than it's ever been. It's a very powerful tool, and that's why in other interviews I've been asked, they say, why, why, is it, why is it working? How is this possible? Well, how did we get here? Well, because most normal, ordinary, kind American people, which is the vast majority of us, no one, none of us want to be called racist. None of us want to be called sexist, bigoted, homophobe. So we will oftentimes just back down. The normal person does not want to, not want to be called those things, doesn't want to have a confrontation over these things, and, and also may, may very well feel, oh, I must have missed something. Maybe I did do something offensive. That is the power of the social justice movement because that's what powers this dynamic. It comes from the social justice ideology. There is an entire chapter in my book that goes into um, entire my, the entire chapter of my book, Privileged Victims, that goes into um, social justice ideology, where that comes from. It's basically the left, every one of the left's bad ideas dating back to probably the 50s, um, communism, Marxism, uh, feminism, uh, socialism, queer theory, all of these things. Um, and how does it change? Well, we have seen signs that there is some fight in people. I, I, I point to the election of Donald Trump. I think 50% of the reason why people chose him was because he said, look, I don't care if you call me sexist. I don't care if you call me racist. This is how I see it, and I believe this thing to be true, whether he was talking about anchor babies, immigration, um, any number of things. And then also the the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. The Me Too movement, movement has been entirely infected by the social justice ideology seized by the social justice mob. That's where, why we're seeing so many ridiculous claims and trying to roll it into Oh, that's another Me Too. Well, there's another Me Too. Well, you know, Donald Trump stood behind Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh fought it. You had the the, the uh, Republicans on the Senate Judici- Judiciary Committee. And by the way, that was that was another thing. If you remember, leading up into uh, before we even got to the to the hearings, the the media's main um, disqualification of the whole thing to say the whole thing is a sham is, oh, this is run by old white men. That was just an automatic dock against them. You couldn't trust. Right. You couldn't trust unlike, unlike Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, who are youthful and vigorous. Eddie, we have to, unfortunately, we have to leave it there for now. But everyone should hear. Obviously, you got a lot to say. They should uh, they should hear more about this, read more about this with Privileged Victims on Amazon, available wherever you get books. Eddie Scary of The Washington Examiner. Thanks for joining us, Eddie. Thanks, Buck. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Some jazzy roll call that sets you off on your weekend. Hope everything is going to be fantastic for you, team. We've got some of your wonderful comments to get to today. We got the penalty box ready to rock with producer Mark. He'll be chiming in as he tends to do uh, with with his wisdom. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just I'm another week, man. Another week. Whew. Uh, it's quite a time. It's going to be quite a year. That much I am very confident about. All right, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to send me a message on Facebook. Also, Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com if you want to um, 
Send me an email. Sorry, I don't know why. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to sp- I'm starting to pull Joe Biden over here. I'm like, oh, producer Mark, my legs. I got some sun in California that turned a little blonde. I'm gonna have people look at my leg hair. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Uh, he's got me on that one. All right, Adam, first up here. Buck, for the climate change nickname, I think climate cultist rolls off the tongue, and it's about as short as I think you can get. Um, climate cultist is actually a little tough to say, I think, Adam, but I, I appreciate your point, and I think that you're, uh, as, as content or as, as something that is trying to describe the situation, I think that that certainly works. So, yeah, there we go. We can, we can do that. We can check that one out. I appreciate that. Uh, Elvin, cool name. I started listening to you since the Glenn Beck days, but I lost track of your whereabouts for some time. However, thanks to the magic of the podcast, I am back on the team. I enjoy your serious take with the funny twist to the daily events. My teenage son and daughter are also warming up to your show. Oh, well, glad to have you back on the team, Elvin. And please, uh, if you know anybody else that knows me from the old days when, when I was found a lost puppy in a back alley about to go get a graduate degree good heavens oh good heavens um instead i went to work in media um but yes please do uh spread the word pass the buck tell people that they can find me on podcasts our podcast numbers are growing i am so thankful about this i i really mean this to all of you that get someone to listen we see every single time you get an additional per we can see every every download so when you get your friend to listen, that is showing up. It's like a vote for the show, and we tally up all the votes every month, and that's what keeps the lights on up here. Producer Mark, this guy just got married. He's moving to a new house in Jersey. Producer Mark needs a new pair of shoes, probably a new lawnmower, probably you know a nice a nice handbag for for Mrs. Mark, known I, as Ariel. I didn't realize that apartments need lawnmowers now. You moved to an apartment? Yeah. But you moving to a house? No. You gotta update me. Now it seems like I don't even know what I'm what I'm talking about over here. You think here. I have that kind of money? Come on. I, don't, I don't know. You know what, what houses, houses cost? A lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. So you oh you're moving to like like Urban NJ? Uh, kind of. Uh, there's an apartment right next to Chicago's Junction. Oh, okay. It's gonna which be close though, which is great. Because now I was gonna have to get him a little cot for the Freedom Hut, but now uh-huh. Bruce Mark can basically live here. He'll oh, see, great. He's, he'll see Mrs. Mark on the weekends. Ariel, she'll. Does she, she? You said she's a good cook, right? What's the what's the she's go-to? She's a good cook. Uh, she doesn't really have a go-to. She just anything she, she yeah. does pretty good. Yeah, that's nice. Um, well, I'm excited for you to have your new place. Well, thank and that, you. That your commute will be shorter than mine. Uh well, about the you same. will spend less time daily commuting. Well, I yes, you, that's right. for a different reason. That's though. for a different reason. Yeah, yeah it's got to go to two radio shows every day. All right, uh, Elvin, thank you so much, Isaac. Hey, Buck. We all love producer Mark. Both of you do a great job. I really enjoy audiobooks, and I'll grab your book regardless of what form it's in. However, I'm curious to know if you're going to release it as an audiobook. If so, are you going to read it yourself? I've always been slightly disappointed when I hear an audiobook written by someone who speaks for a living only to find a surrogate narrator. Uh, Isaac, it's pro- it's going to be released by my friends at Stansbury Research. It's a joint project with them. So I wrote this book, but they're going to be putting it out. Um, I, there'll be a website for it. And um, I'm not exactly sure when we're going to have that up, but it'll be it's a matter of a few months now. So it's it's coming. David. Hey, Buck. Love listening to the show. I'm not a doctor or health professional of any kind, but I feel the common cold is there to keep our immune system in check. Beside getting a serious illness, the cold helps our immune system stay healthy. You can stay healthy all the time. Shields high. Thanks for doing what you do. Mm. Thank you, David, for writing in. I don't know if that's 
from a medical standpoint, really a factual thing. That seems to me, I, I think we could be fine without, because your body is fighting off. There's, there's a constant war. We're in war mode. War mode. You're, you're, there's a constant war going on uh, of the various microbes. You five pounds of microbes is what you actually have in and on your body at any point in time. That's the estimate. And they're always, you know, you have right now um, bacteria on your skin that would be scary to hear about. You know, you have staph bacteria, most likely, staphylococcus on your skin. You have other kinds of bacteria that, you know, are in and around your body, but they're not at pathogenic levels or they're not at um, levels that would make you sick. So I don't know if you need to get a cold for your immune system, but you do need to be exposed to germs to keep your immune system, which just means like live your life, live your life, eat healthy food, limit your vices, limit your drinking, your smoking, your super sugary foods um, and get enough sleep. Sleep is essential for immune. I can't tell you how many times I miss a night or two of sleep, usually because I'm out partying and uh, you know, producer Mark has to pick up the pieces in here and I'll get sick afterwards because your immune system, if you, you overtax your immune system, when you this is real, this is this is hashtag science or, or actually just science. You need enough sleep for your immune system to be functioning. Uh, so do not think that getting like four or five hours for a few nights in a row is something that uh, you can get away with. You're going to get sick. Uh, David. Oh, no, we already did David. Sorry. Jake Buckapalooza. Hey, man, what's up, Jake? I think Tulsi's situation is a perfect microcosm for the Democratic Party. For all intents and purposes, she should be their poster child. She's doubly intersectional, is articulate, has far left-leaning views, would be the first female president, has a record of sorts in government, and is an example of legit girl power as a major in the Hawaiian uh, National Guard. And she presents well, if you catch my meaning. We catch your meaning, Jake. So what if they preach what was actually believed they would embrace her? So why no traction? Why no love? The, the reason is the big media hasn't given her the spotlight. The establishment picks the winners and spoon feeds the media. The media is the X factor for all libs that have a voice. Hillary Clinton doesn't like Tulsi, so Tulsi gets the cold shoulder. Talk about election meddling. Jake, I think your analysis about the media's treatment of Tulsi Gabbard is true. They don't like her, but the reason they don't like her is that she is um, out of step with them on on the Democrat establishment on foreign policy. Um, that's why you hear all this stuff about, oh, she's like a puppet of Assad. That was the big hit. You haven't heard that in a while, by the way. That was the big hit on her for a long time. And she is... Uh, she loves the military, and I think that she wants to be respectful to Republicans and to Trump supporters. That doesn't fly. You can't, you can't be respectful to Trump supporters if you're a Democrat these days. If you, want, if you want power in the Democratic Party, you have to sneer at Trump supporters. You have to think Trump supporters are, are you know, odious people deserving of no respect. So, yeah, uh, I, I think that's where it is with Tulsi Gabbard. And look, she's very far left. I don't agree with her on a lot of things, but she doesn't strike me as a, a shameless, pandering, hateful politician. And that's what does really well in the Democrat Party today. That's what you really need to be. Uh, I don't know if I guess this is I don't know if this is Robbie or Robi, uh, the way it's spelled. When I hear clips, these celebrate. Oh, whoa. Sorry. Hold on. Let me let me redo this one. Uh, when I hear these celebratory baby butchers. I am reminded of a scene from the movie Legion. 
An old woman is... Uh, okay, Robbie, I'm going to skip this one. It's pretty intense. Thank you, though, for writing in. Lori, have you considered a side career in political comedy? Is there such a thing? Because I think you would be fantastic. Seriously, you could make a script and do a show with all your voices. I can hardly stop laughing when you imitate these differing political figures. I just love your impersonations. Shoot, during the election season, it would be a perfect time for a debut. Keep your fabulous impersonations coming. Thank you, Lori. I'm going to remember Lori because sometimes like, people write in like, I just like when you're doing the serious analysis. Save the country. Leave the comedy to other people. I get that sometimes. I was like, oh, oh excuse me. I like, I like Lori's approach more. Um, Lori, I don't know. I, I really, I've talked so much about bringing back an old character from the Blaze days called Commie Bear. I've, I've really thought about it. And, and, you know, now that we have the Pluto TV, it'd be more fun to do. Maybe we could just do like a graphic with Commie Bear behind me or something and have his little mouth move. I don't know. But I, I do like doing the comedy. I think we need to mix it up, especially those of you who do me the great honor of spending all three hours of radio with me every day. Uh, Monday through Friday, you know, I, I want you to, I, I want it to move quickly. I want you to have, you know, I want there to be intense learning and and fighting for what we believe in in terms of principles, but I also want there to be fun stuff too. I want people to enjoy their time they spend with me. It really matters to me. So I, I like the political comedy aspect of it. And that's why, you know, I, I never I never get sore, never get my nose out of joint when, uh, when uh, producer Mark is getting salty over there. You know, when he's being... Groucho Mark. I'm like, it's okay. He, he's allowed to be a little salty sometimes. He's also keeping the trains on track here in the Freedom Hut. Darby. Hey, I remember Darby. I haven't heard from him in a while. Shields High, your brother from Dallas here. Haven't heard anyone point out that the abortion industry in America is basically a huge money laundering uh, scheme. Congressmen and women vote to give Planned Parenthood millions. Planned Parenthood then makes huge donations to politicians. It's a self-looking ice cream cone. Keep up the fight, brother. Yeah, no, I, I've talked to you about it. The abortion lobby is probably the, among the very most powerful lobbies in the United States. They always talk about the NRA. The NRA's got nothing on the abortion lobby. And unlike the NRA, the abortion lobby actually kills people every day. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, our roll call is continuing here. Wait, but, but before we get to roll call, Producer Mark, did you see this this poll they did? of people that were asked what video game they would like to see made into a movie and the winner was Pac-Man? What is wrong <laughs> with people? Like, there are so many great options out there. Pac-Man? Pac I mean... Pac-Man? I don't know how you make it a movie. There's First no story. Did, did they already make it a movie? Or is there already, like, I a feel like there, there was, was a cartoon, cartoon, right? cartoon or something, yeah. Do you have one? If you, if you had Off to make a... Off the top of my a, head? Yeah, if you had to make a video game into a movie... Huh. Is there one that you would? I mean, Grand Theft Auto comes to mind, but that, that actually, would be just that would be insanely yeah. gross, probably for some people. Well, I'd enjoy it. They had they couldn't do like the really gross stuff. Yes, I remember I played that game for a little bit. I never got that good at it though. I never. There were some games that I really leaned into and became like like ninja level. Yeah, and uh, that was not oh, I'm actually not good at the, it, the game like Tekken, it. which was an old ninja video game, would be a cool movie because hmm. it's like. Ninja stuff, but also works in like Japanese. Um, how do I like uh, the the mystical and you know like like demons and monsters yes. and stuff kind of too, or or uh, Ninja Gaiden. I don't know if you ever remember that I that don't. video game. Obviously, I'm really into the ninja thing right yeah. now. But I, I, dude, I grew up. I watched so many ninja. I love ninjas. I watched so I many can ninja tell. movies. You bring it up, up all the time. I just what 
Hey, I just watched um, a little bit of uh, the Tom Cruise movie because it's on Netflix now, The Last Samurai. The hmm. only part of that movie that I really want to watch, I just skipped to the middle where they have the ninja scene. That's the best scene in the whole movie by far. How do you just watch the middle of a movie? You just get Netflix. I've seen no, it. No, like, I know how you do it physically, but why, why would you do that? Well, just because that scene's really cool. Okay. And you can skip right to it. I'm sure it's on YouTube if you really just want I've to done see that, that too. scene. Yeah, yeah it's a, that's a good scene, though. Okay. I'm just saying. All right. Well, whatever. They made some movie years ago, like Ninja something or other, and it was unwatchable trash. I can't even remember. It was supposed to be all about ninjas in like the contemporary context. I was very disappointed in it. I need to make the ninja movies. What needs to happen? Sure. Yeah. We'll get right on that. Yeah. Paulette. Hey, Buck. Faithful, rather addicted listener who used to believe 99% of what you say until this week... I wasn't convinced that people connect your name with the adult film industry. This week, I was talking about your show to a male employee who suddenly looks up and asks if I said Buck Sexton. I affirmed that indeed I had. He then asked me a question. Is that like a porn star? I immediately said, yes, yes, it is. I enjoy spending my five-day-a-week, two-hour commute listening to a porn star. I'm going to let him think that for another week because I'd rather enjoy the looks he keeps giving me when he doesn't think I can see him. Next week, I'll give him the lowdown of the Freedom Hunter and hopefully get you a new listener. Much love to you and producer Mark. Shields high, gentlemen. Yeah, thank you, Paulette. This is the joke that's, that this is the joke that very not funny people keep making. I mean, I tell my parents, I'm like, why do you guys have to give me such a weird name? It, they gave me this name. I didn't choose this name. That's one of my favorite emails. Yeah. Because, like... That person isn't doing it to mock you like he doesn't know you're a Republican commentator. He just legitimately heard the name and thought you were a porn star. Yeah, but maybe it's a porn star that's a great podcast. You know, maybe, maybe. It's a porn star that's very, very, uh, very well read. There's got to be one out there. Oh, there's got to be a guy. There's got to be a male adult film star who Male is, or female. There's got to be. Well, right, I was, yeah. I'm, I'm a dude, but yeah, I'm just saying there's got to be one. Who's, you know who actually, uh, you know who actually um, uh, likes some of my tweets? Uh, is the very, very famous former adult film star Jenna Jameson, huh. who is a conservative. Maybe we'll get her on. That actually would be really interesting. Yeah. I, I would, I would, I would, Bill O'Reilly had her on years ago. I remember that interview. Well, that was uh, probably for different reasons. I just remember Bill O'Reilly had her on, but it'd be interesting. I, I would, I would gladly have her on to hear about her politics. So, okay. At some point, I'll work she's, on it. She's definitely right wing. I'm not sure she's like James Woods level right wing, but she's sure. definitely right wing. We got to have Woods on too. He's been great. On Twitter. Uh, Greg, hey, Buck, you said Braveheart is the greatest movie of all time. I agree. Let's not forget that Mel Gibson is also the greatest actor of all time. He should still be making movies on that level to this day, but the Hollywood left ruined him. It's extremely sad in a way. Shields high. Greg, um, I mean, I agree with you, obviously, about, Mel, about Braveheart. I, I think Mel Gibson has to take a lot of a lot of responsibility for ruining Mel Gibson, if we're really going to be honest here. Uh, but I appreciate you writing in, my man. And uh, yeah, I, I think Brave, Braveheart's just like has a special place in my heart as a movie. I remember my mom took me. I saw it with my mom back when it came out when I was in high school. I think senior in high school, maybe. And uh, I came out of there and I was just like, I want a broadsword, lad. Where is my broadsword? I I want to wear a kilt. I want to go fight English. You know the whole thing. And uh, yeah, although it would have been very cold. You know, and wet a lot at that part in that time and in that part of the world. So I don't like being cold and wet. Chopper. Hey, Buck, in regards to children at restaurants, I mean, do people tell him, get to the chopper? Uh, probably, right? Uh, a general rule I've always practiced is the minimum age of a child is determined by the cheapest entree on the menu. $7 is age seven minimum. Seems a great way for everyone involved. I could I could co-sign on that. What do we think? I like it. Yeah, it's not bad. 
John writes, Buck, thank you for having the courage to talk about the atrocity of abortion. I find it strange the same people who want abortion for nine months will protest drinking milk. How misguided. John, appreciate you writing in. I feel like whenever I talk too much about that, there are people in different stations who probably think that it's hurting the ratings, but I think it's important. I talk about what matters, and I hope you all respect and appreciate that. But always let me know your thoughts. Team, you have uh, a fantastic weekend, please. That's what I would ask for all of you. Rest, recoup, regroup, do all the things you got to do. Try to tell somebody about the Buck Sexton Show. Tell them to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or on the iHeart app. Until Monday, Shields High.